This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Hi, this is Tony Prescott for the Convergent Science Network podcasts from the Barcelona Summer School on Cognition, Brain and Technology. And I'm talking to Andy Philippides from Informatics at the University of Sussex. Andy, uh, your group works with uh, ants and other insects, looking at their behavior in the natural environment and trying to understand the relationship between the environment that they live in and the behavior that they have. Now, why do you think it's important to study uh, animals in their real environment and not just in the laboratory? Well, I think you can't do the... You can't do research in the absence of laboratory experiments, but you have to test the the same behaviours in the real world wherever possible, primarily because they, insects, ants, animals, um, neurons often respond very, very differently uh, when you have natural stimuli. And so we need to be able to see what the natural behaviour is. Um, many, there are many, a lot of anecdotal evidence for this, um, particularly recently um, with optic flow, where people have people traditionally use very strong optic flow signals and the models work in a certain way with these very strong optic flow signals. And when they've recently challenged these uh, models with optic flow signals, as an animal would perceive moving in the real world, you get very different results. So this would these be experiments with insects? or This is experiments. I think they... they they recorded the uh, video from cats moving through the undergrowth and it's just putting them into sort of optic flow based models. So with ants, um, we typically in the lab, uh, we use as blank an environment as possible so that the only um, visual objects they can use are the ones that we've put, put in. Um, and this clearly isn't a natural, um, a natural environment. So when we're and we typically train into a, a vertical edge for instance and so um whilst we can get a lot of information that way this is not the sort of thing that they usually attend to so for instance paul graham's recent work showing that they use the whole pan- panorama wouldn't be you, that, that wouldn't work in the lab because you'd have to reconstruct an artificial panorama that doesn't move in the same way as a real panorama doesn't does and uh, primarily it's got a very different distance distribution of objects. So th- this is um, looking at the visual navigation capability of an yeah, ant. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So, so why would people be particularly interested in the ant as a, as a system in which to study navigation behavior? Well, uh, firstly, because they're very good at it. Secondly, because, they, um, because they're uh, social insects and social, uh, social foragers they go out multiple times in the day, so practically they're very good. They go out, they get food, give it back to the colony, um, and then go out and forage again. So you can train them quickly. Um, they learn in one trial. Uh, they've got lots of interesting behaviours. Um, the more interesting reason, I think, is that they're, would argue they're one of the most complex animals you can study in which you can study them over the course of the whole foraging range. So it is possible to track an ant when it leaps from where it leaves its nest to when it finds food 
and when it comes back. And there is some work ongoing in Australia to track certain ants um, through the course of their whole life until one gets bored. <laughs> but at least from so that one can have a record of that everything everywhere they've been and all the visual experience all the visual um visual input they might have experienced so uh, are ants navigation capabilities simpler than uh, mammals say or just specialized well i think they're very good at what they do they're different because they've got compound eyes so there are certain things that uh, we would do differently. Their eyes are certainly a lot worse than ours. Um, they don't use maps, and we do use maps. I think it's been pretty much categorically shown that they categorically shown that they don't use cognitive maps. Um, and so, for instance, um, if you train an ant to go out to find food and then come back, it'll come back along the same path. Um, if you then uh, place the ant back on that path when it's fed um, at the middle of the path. It's, getting, it's got exactly the same visual input that it would have got for going out or coming back, and it will just return home. Um, if you place it when it's empty, it will go out to the to the goal. So this kind of indicates that the memories are kind of insulated from each other. And there's been various quite nice experiments that shown that that their memories, their root memories, are kind of insulated from one another by context and they can't really share across them so by um not having a cognitive map yep. they are in some sense limited to doing homing behaviors essentially or or are they able to learn multiple paths they learn multiple paths they learn multiple paths and it's likely if their multiple paths are the same well it's possible our model would be that if they multiple paths to the same food source then it's maybe stored as one route but certainly it would appear that outbound routes and nest bound routes are insulated from one another and they would be primed by the context of being fed and so they could well be primed by other things um you know they may well forage at other pl different places at different times they they such as bees would um but yeah i think that they're i mean the other reason that we study them is because they are specialists and when they want to return home having found food, all they care about is getting home. And uh, Tom Collett has a very nice phrase where he says that their behaviour gives a direct readout of their nervous system. And so without doing something invasive and difficult to do in the field, you can see exactly, well, you can see what the ant it thinks it's doing. Yeah, I think that that is really useful because one of the biggest problems in in neuroethology i think of studying in ethology of studying animals in the field is that it's very hard to know what the intentions of the animal are and therefore to have much insight into what it might be trying to do never mind what it, from what it's actually doing yeah i think that's right it, it's you know that is what that it's kind of that's the primarily all they want to do so you know exactly what its intention is there aren't any distractions and so, yeah. So we know that one of the mechanisms that they use is to do path integration, a kind of step counting. And they also have some kind of compass based on the sun. Yeah, they're, they've got cells in their eyes that are sensitive to polarised light. Um, so they have, and they need both steps and polarised light to do path integration. 
And path integration, in some senses, should be enough to go back to the next. It should be. Um, but the problem with path integration, so in path integration, effectively, you every if you imagine dividing up your whole path into a series of small vectors, then you simply sum those vectors and uh, minus the st sum vector points you back home. Unfortunately, every vector, every step you take is going to be have some error associated with it. Um, particularly if you're being blown by the wind, which the ants often are. Um, and so the errors accumulate. And so um, when you return home, you the longer the path you've gone, the more, more you're likely to miss the nest by. So ants actually do very similar things to um, uh, sailors used to do, in which if a sailor was trying to head back to their port by dead reckoning, they would always aim to one side of the port so that they knew that when they hit the coast, they knew which way they had to turn to find it. And ants do seem to do a similar thing in that they will go one side of the nest so that they know which side to bias their search by. Um, so path integration is great is and is essential for them to find their way home the first time, but they will, from the very first trip back, they will learn visual cues because in vision, the stability is in the world. Um, the ants that we study in Australia, Molophorus, Bogotti, uh, they don't use pheromones for navigation because they they burn off in the uh, in the heat and um, the cataglyphus uh, would be very much the same. Um, the wood ants we study in Sussex in the lab um, pheromones the, the ground is quite unstable because there's quite a lot of rain um, and so pheromones aren't much good um, and so again they they're primarily visual. And, uh, and all ants that can use, that have vision, do use vision and do seem to prioritise it over the other um, elements they might use to get home. So um, ants will have multiple strategies. And yep. uh, as you're saying, different species, some species may use chemical trails, but what's quite common in ants is to use, on top of path integration and compass sense, some uh, visual memory of the world yeah. and that can uh, compensate for errors you might make with your path integration so you'd have two mechanisms uh, that are complementary um yes well they're complementary um and there is some evidence that they are used uh they're used together but it looks more like that they they just come to rely on one they will use the signals from one and then maybe use the other if if the world starts to look different, for instance. So they'll start using vision. Once they've learnt the path, they'll use vision. And then if things start to look wrong, maybe they'll turn back to path integration or go into a search behaviour. Um, it's very difficult to tease those things apart in experiments in the natural world because um, you can't really put those two things in direct opposition very easily so the ants uh, as you said the the ant had a, has a somewhat crude visual system yes um, what is it that we think that they're attending to when they're using visual cues for navigation okay so um, some of our recent experiments say that the uh, skyline well but this Paul Graham and Ken Cheng's work have shown that um, the skyline which is the shape of trees against the sky 
is sufficient for them to be able to navigate, to be able to recover a direction home. Um, and their work also showed that they didn't just use certain key prominent objects. So we think that it's likely to be some version of um, the, 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 the shape that things make against the sky, which is very easy for them to pick out because they've got UV uh, sensors. Um, so they would, uh, in some sense, encode the shape of the horizon as they were leaving the nest in order to be able to, that would be, yeah. to recognize when they're back there? Yeah, that would be the classic snapshot view that you would remember what the world looked like from the nest um, and a very low-dimensional parameterized version of the world, whether you remember it as an image, whether you remember it as a height map, whether you remember it as in other models as, as retinotopic positions of significant gaps in the world. It, those things are very difficult to say. Um, but you remember that, and then when you want to return to your nest, um, you just move to make the world look more like your memory. So that's the kind of hill climbing thing that that if if I move left and it looks a bit more like my uh, memory, I can keep moving left or something. You just carry on. Yeah, yep. you carry in the direction you're going while it's getting more similar. Yeah. But I mean, hill climbing strategies are known to get stuck. They uh, do. <laughs> so why doesn't the ant get stuck in local minima for um, its strategy? Primarily because if you're in an area and there aren't any um, obstacles in the way, if the, if the region that you're in doesn't have any obstacles, um, then there won't be any local minima. And you can say that from what? From experimental findings? Uh, yes, yeah, so for some, from some work that um, Jochen Zahl did, originally, um, where he took panoramic images from a series of natural environments. And w over a sort of a cubic meter, um, there was a clear gradient in this in this kind of image space. And you can kind of do it mathematically as well. It's in a sense, it's kind of the inverse of optic flow. That it, if you haven't got occlusion, then things move in a very predictable way. Now, the caveat with all that is that for this to work, you have to be lined up in the same you have to be yeah you have to be in the same orientation you were for all these images now um and most of the visual homing algorithms this is true and this comes from the original models were based on models of bees and wasps who do line up very precisely in a certain orientation uh, before entering the nest um and but for ants, this is somewhat more difficult. So that is a challenge for the models. Um, and so we've proposed that visual memories might be used in a slightly different way, whereby instead of trying to, um, you try and recover the direction to your, yeah, you try and recover the direction, try and use images as a visual compass. Um, so with a visual compass, what you do is you remember the view from your goal when you're in a certain orientation or more properly you remember the view when you're pointing at your goal um, and from nearby positions if you rotate on the spot when you're in that same orientation then you will again find a sort of minimum in this image difference landscape space um, and so you'll be able to recover the orientation of those images 
Now that doesn't seem very good for homing, but if you then remember a series of images when you're pointed at your goal from uh, points surrounding the goal, then you should be able to get back and we've modeled this and you can then get back from anywhere within, well, within a, a reasonable range around that goal. So um, how would you know that the ant was using that strategy? Is there some behavioral marker that it's encoded a, a snapshot? Or? Um, well, we, we, we have observed ants um, visually scanning the world, or they appear to visually scan the world. So we've got some high-speed recordings, and this is uh, work in preparation of ants who, um, of Melophorus, desert, the Australian desert ant, when it comes when it's challenged with a new environment, sometimes just sort of naturally it will, it has this kind of saccadic motion where it will run along for a bit and then it will stop and it will turn on the spot, seem to pick a direction and then head off again in a straight line and then again turn on the spot. And it does more of these scans when it's in an unfamiliar environment and it also seems these scans are directed towards the more familiar part of the environment. Some really... Uh, elegant work by Paul Graham um, and uh, Ken Cheng and Antoine Wistrach. Um, so we at least know that the behaviour the behaviour is there that would serve to to, uh, to facilitate our model. The other thing I mean we the, you also do see in wood ants is they, they tend to walk in a kind of sinusoidal path um, which again would kind of enable you to behaviorally scan the world as you went along. So as, as well as having behavioral evidence that points mm. towards this possibility of them encoding snapshots, um, and this is behavioral evidence from experiments in, in, in natural environments, Yeah. Um, you also are doing computational modeling work to actually demonstrate that those hypotheses about the mechanisms could operate to control, say, a simple robot. Yep. And so um, what similarities do you think there need to be between the robot and the ant in order to test this model? To test it so that it's a good model of an ant? Yeah, I mean, can it be a very crude robot model? Or um, I think that the, the real difficulty, and this is going to be the sticking block, is to get it the eye down to ant level. And that's the real problem. I think we could do, I think we've, we have done some tests on indoor robots. We've got a, a gantry robot, but that's quite precise. And we've kind of cluttered up the environment, the, the world enough. Um, but we don't need, we can do it with, with uh, any sort of robot platform. And we should be doing this in the next year. You mean the, the strong test of actually putting a robot in the Australian desert? where the ants are and showing that it can do Yeah, I think the first the test would be we, we would do it in natural environments around Sussex. I think there's no point doing it in the Australian desert where it's a bit hot um, until we've got it working, until we can test whether it's working in, in Sussex when it's a foot above the ground, say. Um, and, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's our next step. Uh, so I think it can be, that could be quite a crude robot. We don't really care about speed. Um, the ant has to deal with an uneven ground, which, because it's small, is very uneven for it. Um, and we're not going to be able to recreate that, I think, with any robot we have. 
So there are certain compromises about that come into you have to take in consideration in building a robot model of the system. Mm-hmm. But are there, even though it's a crude model, are there already some insights that you've got through this modeling approach that you think you may not have had from a purely experimental one? Um, definitely. I think the, 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 the thing that we have done and the thing we has given us a lot of insight is, is taking panoramic images from the positions that ants were navigating in and being able to see what their visual input would have been, what the, what the input to their eyes would have been. And it doesn't tell us what they're seeing doesn't really tell us how the image is then being processed, but we can tell what the raw visual input is. Um, and um, this is, follow, again, following on from the work of Jochen Zahl, who sort of pioneered this work. Um, and it is staggering to see um, how different the world looks. Most of the world is sky, and a lot of the world is the ground, and there's not much of the world carries any kind of I don't know, signal for navigation. Um, and so one of the slides we, we like to show, or one of the images we like to show is an image of the environment where as a human, you instantly pick out the house. Um, and when you show it as a panoramic image, the, the house just kind of disappears into the background. Um, and when you blur it down to insect resolution, you really don't see anything. Um, so that really has given us a lot of insight and has enabled us to do some interesting modeling about the, the scale over which one single visual memory would serve to allow you to navigate. And um, the insect navigation uh, uh, the, is a very collaborative area and lots of other people are doing this sort of methodology. And I think it's really helping the field to see, you know, how different does the world look from this position? Do I need to... Um, would the ant need to have a cognitive map to get back from A to B, or can it simply navigate with a simple strategy? Um, and just getting an idea of what the insect is seeing is it has been inval- invaluable, I think. Do you think that there are uh, useful ideas people can take from this for designing artefacts, say micro-robots? Well, I think that... The, uh, most people tell me that the, the slam problem is solved and that... Um, That's the mapping problem for The robots. mapping problem. So, so that the autonomous navigation is, can be solved by probabilistic techniques where essentially you track a large number of features of the world um, and you integrate that with information about your position and your likely movement. You integrate probabilistically and you localise both yourself and features of the world in a map. And they have, um, in, in the DARPA grand challenges, they navigate very long distances using these methods. However, they take a lot of computation, an awful lot of computation, and so they're quite heavy, uh, both with batteries and with power. So I think the applications would be for UAVs, uh, unmanned air vehicles, anywhere where the sort of power and weight considerations are important. So maybe also space exploration. Um, and also the other thing is other places where you, there is no GPS. So GPS denied environments. If you have a GPS, you probably want to use it. But I think in environments where you want a low cost solution for whatever reason, 
um, and you haven't got a global GPS signal, then I think I think these these methods they're surprisingly robust. And I think is that almost a lesson from studying insect nervous systems uh, for designing technology more generally that. Uh, what looks like what is very robust behavior uh, can be generated uh, using a, a relatively simple algorithm if you it doesn't have to be as sophisticated as what you might imagine at first no de definitely i think that is the, the one of the great lessons um from with simple eyes very you know poor resolution eyes um and with a brain that can't do a lot of computation um, or can't do very heavy computations and probably hasn't got a very big memory load. Um, you know, ants are fantastic navigators. I mean, bees go miles with not much bigger brains. Um, so and I think... And with similar mechanisms or does it get more complex? Oh, I mm. would like to... Spe well, if I was to speculate, I'd say I don't see why not. Right. I don't see why not. There is a controversy within the field as to whether bees might use cognitive maps. Um, I think the consensus would be that they don't. Um, I think they would use similar mechanisms. Um, I know several people seem to think that a lot of the long distance homing would be based on odometry. Um, I don't see why they wouldn't use visual information. Um, that the horizon, what we've sh when we've shown our algorithms can easily work over a hundred meters in an open environment um, and you can kind of make the world open by flying up and the shape of the horizon is a really really strong cue and a robust one presumably uh, well it's not going to move very much i don't yeah, think yeah. Um, particularly over their lifetime so i don't see why they wouldn't um, and you kind of only need to match the gross shape and you can get roughly the way back um, i think insects have always tend to have multiple strategies which is, makes it to, to do any one task which makes it complicated when you're trying to study them and which is why they're interesting I think um, but, but they need to because they need to be robust and they need to get home um, and so I think that there will always be a combination of strategies so yeah I would like to think that bees and wasps do the same we know that we know they use vision certainly for the last part of their to find their nest so i don't see why they wouldn't over a longer distance thanks very much for talking to us andy thank you the csn podcast was produced by the convergent science network of biometics and biohybrid systems a project funded by the european seventh research framework program for more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometrics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.